0: The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. I'm Simon Reynolds
1: and I'm in an imaginary airport business lounge with the world's most successful people waiting for their flight. Business people have to travel and sometimes delays happen and we can take advantage of that. You get to hear 45 minutes of one guest in conversation before their flight boards. You'll hear their stories, the triumphs, the challenges and the lessons they've learned along the way.
0: Welcome to The Business Lounge.
2: Paging passenger Matt Rockman, please make your way to the Disrupt Radio Business Lounge now.
0: The Business Lounge.
2: Both Fairfax and News for a long time played the game as if they couldn't be disrupted and couldn't be out-executed and couldn't be beat. History has proved them wrong on that.
0: The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. This
1: is Simon Reynolds, and you've entered The Business Lounge. Today's guest is the co founder of one of the greatest success stories in Australian business history, seek.com.au. He started Seek with two friends at a time when there were virtually no successful Australian internet companies, and many people doubted the internet was even going to be important. Now, the company is valued at over $8 billion. It's time to welcome one of this country's finest entrepreneurs, Matt Rockman. Matt, great to have you here. In the business lounge. Thank you, mate. It's it's a pleasure. That geez, that's a fair accolade there. What's what's really unusual is, is it's actually true. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty bizarre. You must you must feel pretty good about what you've achieved, with C. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know certainly one out of the box.
2: It sort of doesn't feel that real. I mean, I left some time ago. It was a crazy, crazy ride. Obviously. I, you know, I look upon the company now. It's market leader, global, employs a lot of people. I think I heard the number it employs ten thousand people globally. So, wow, a lot of the numbers are now might blog boggling. And I
1: still still own part of the company. So beautiful. It's like twenty six years later. Wow, extraordinary. And at that time, though, you know, there was I remember. There's a whole lot of conjecture. Is this internet going to work? Is it? Can you commercialize it? Was it hard to convince people in the early days? that an online uh, job search company would actually work?
2: Yeah, it absolutely was. We had a sort of two-part challenge. I mean, first of all, there were very few people online at the time when we launched in 98. We actually launched the website March 98 and the online population was tiny. Our challenge was to do two things. One is to sort of reached the virtues of online as a better way to find jobs or a better classified medium. And two was then to choose Seek, because there were other competitors around at the time. It was very early days. People were using dial up modems with Aussie mail accounts and AOL was the big, you know, the big directory in the US. So it looked the internet looked very there was no Google. Um it looked very different to what it does today. No social media.
1: Unbelievable, really, when you think about it. And at the time, you were, there were companies like Fairfax, which had the famous rivers of gold of online jobs, which really, really financed the entire organisation. What did they think of companies like yours?
2: Well, I think to their detriment, they, they, they ignored us as, as a, you know, a start-up, a challenger brand. Both Fairfax and News for a long time played the game as if they couldn't be disrupted and couldn't be out-executed and couldn't be beaten. Well, history has proved them wrong on that you know the rivers of gold turned to a to a creek and turned to a dusty riverbed in the end um and and i mean you know the fairfax assets were smashed um, rea on the on the real estate
1: us on jobs and car sales for autos all the way through as you were watching them say this is just a a challenger it's not going to amount to anything did you guys have absolute certainty that this was the future or were you in doubt at various times yourself so I think we had no doubt on the me- the power of the medium. I
2: mean, the internet versus print is just a better way. Like Television, in a lot of ways, is richer than radio. The internet for us was just a superior way to interact or, or bring together both sides of the job market. Uh, it was 24-7. It was borderless. It was low cost. It was interactive. You could set up things like job alerts. You could do deep Searches. Um, you didn't have to wait for a Saturday. It was low price, so it sort of changed the access point for many SMEs and smaller advertisers. So we we were never we were never unsure of the power of the medium. I guess you know we we didn't quite know the take up rate in Australia, how fast that would happen, and whether we could you know, maintain our funding and the volumes through that J-curve journey
1: of the internet take-up. But Australians ended up taking up the internet very quickly and en masse. But you founded it in in 98, so you would have just got started and then the uh, dot-com crash happened in in 2000 where, you know, millions disputed the internet. What was it like being in the company through that? Pretty tough, pretty
2: tough. I mean, we were originally planning to raise some money. In fact, I think IPO back then. And our advisor, which was Macquarie Bank at the time, said, you just, you know, sort of, I think the dot-com crash was sort of Easter 2000. And we were planning to go out before that um, and list the business for a sort of last capital raise. And Macquarie said, this is just not a thing. The markets and NASDAQ had crashed 50 60%, whatever the and we were sort of locked into a no ca- access to capital journey. We had to look at cutting costs, we had to look at how hard we could hit our revenue levers and get the business to break even. Um, it wasn't a break even at that time, um, a bit like what we've seen post-COVID with the, you know, the frenzy around venture and startups and capital markets. And, and we've seen the pendulum, you know, History. History is repeating itself where, where now you have to really be profitable to be well-valued. It was the same back then. So we had to move to profitability very
1: quickly. Mm. And were you in danger of going under at any point in time because you had, uh, uh, you know, you had a monthly cash burn, uh, and yet you, uh, presumably there weren't many people who wanted to give you
0: cash?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was no access to capital. And I I, th- I, think if we couldn't have sort of pushed through that revenue curve or the inflection point on our revenue above our cost base, yeah, we, we absolutely would have run out of money or had a down round or something like that. Um, we mm-hmm. were able to drive the revenues. I was sort of in charge of the revenues and we were fairly convinced we, you know, we were representing outstanding value. And I think at the time, our average ad price was, you know, I'm going to say sort of sub $20. The print equivalent was in the thousands. Wow. Initially, for you know, sort of to gain market share, we gave it away. We gave the service away. And we just slowly tried to move that to a more monetized and commercial basis. And that enabled our revenues to to increase. Mm.
1: And when you guys were even deciding uh, to start Seek, how did that work? Did you just come up with. 20 ideas for the internet together and, and get it down to three and then get it down to one? Or was it more strategic than that?
2: No, it was a little bit more elegant than that. I mean, Paul, my partner at the time had done some work for LookSmart, which was one of the original category, mm. highly edited sort of search engines, if you want. What well, wasn't really a search engine. And he'd become sort of fascinated with the internet and done some preliminary work on classifieds. Employment's the largest of the classifieds by market value. I think then followed by real estate and then and then autos. But we kept a generic name and the original plan was actually to build out in all three categories, but it just, it never
1: happened. And once you, uh, I think a lot of people who haven't started a business would be interested in what you actually do. Once you said, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to open an online job uh, search company, what do you do? Is that you you register the company, then you start looking for offices, or so what? What were some of the first things you actually did? Yeah, <laughs>
2: I think the first thing we did. I mean, obviously, we 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 came up with a name and registered the URL, and I sort of we had a whole list of names that would come up with. They had to be generic. They had to be easy to spell. I had to be available, which back then was much easier than it is today. And, you know, I was driving home in my car at the time and saw Seek on the old CD player and thought, geez, that was a good one. I know we'd listed it earlier that day and I raced upstairs onto, you know, one of the Melbourne IT, I think was the, the website. Yeah and punched in seek.com.au, and it said, this, you know, this URL is available. <laughs> so I handed over my $19.95 and bought the URL, and I think the rest is history. It's probably quite valuable
1: now. Unbelievable, yeah.
2: Yeah, and that gave us the opportunity. And then I think the next day was something as ridiculous as we were working out of my father's office, heading down to Officeworks and buying the you know, the celebratory 6,000 pens and notepads and (laughs) all that, you know, desk chairs and all that. But but once we got that stuff out of the way, it was really around building the site, hiring the team. Uh, We're aware we had to raise some capital. It was was building the tech. I mean, it was on very early tech, you know, the coding. It was on cold fusion and it was sort of real generation one stuff. Mm. Uh, Build the site and then, you know, Obviously, the marketing plan to get the, get the site out there. We were one of the first businesses, dot-com businesses, to use a lot of TVCs, and you will remember some of that because, Simon, you you helped us produce the famous Alan Bond commercial. That's um, it. That, that really you know, got a lot of PR and a lot of notoriety. So, it was really about building out the different verticals of capital, talent, the product in this instance, which was the website, and going to market around all those different verticals.
1: And the technology must have been super clunky back back then. Yeah, expensive, slow, hard to
2: change. We had the site developed um, externally and, you know, it was a whole team of developers. It wasn't nearly as efficient as it is today. You know, UI and UX were were, were sort of new concepts. You really just banged a website up there. And you did this naive job search. We had this running man on the job. It was just crazy, crazy early stage stuff. But at the but but you know, so true that the site did actually allow you to search for jobs and list jobs and pay for jobs. So whilst it wasn't the best navigation and the prettiest looking you know, user interface, it worked. It worked 24-7. The buyers and sellers of talent or recruiters and corporates and job seekers could interact on this website.
1: And it's all relative too. So people were pretty excited just to see a site that worked. They weren't exactly saying, oh, well, you know, I don't like the UX or, or, yeah. or whatever.
2: And there was no mobile, right? Laptops were a thing and desktops were a thing, but, but you weren't really searching the internet on, on your mobile phone, so you were sort yeah. of tied to a
1: desk. So how long before you guys thought, you know what, we're going to absolutely kill it with this? Was it was there a long period of of just survival, or did you pretty much know straight away this is going to be huge?
2: No, I mean, I don't think – I think we had a really high degree of paranoia, and, and you know, that that kept us match fit. Um, we were sort of bum, you know, head down, bum up, pretty paranoid. I mean, we had some pretty rich and powerful – and aggressive competitors in News Corp and Fairfax, and we were the sort of three young startup guys with a fistful of dollars and a good URL, you know. So that's pretty daunting to have these guys, and they play—they play, play pretty nasty, as you can imagine. As we started to attack their main revenue lines. And
1: when you said you weren't the first job site, I didn't know that. How, how many job sites were around on, online and? And were they formidable or they were amateurs?
2: All the main newspapers had a had a job site. So Fairfax and News. There was also Monster, which was um, a joint venture at the time with uh, CPH. Fairfax had my career. And there was a there was a, a guy in his dad who had probably the biggest site at the time called JobNet. And Jobnet was servicing the IT only uh, segment or niche. And that was the biggest, obviously. So you know coders and people in it online looking for jobs but over time we just we just out out executed job net
1: so do you think that that was just because you guys were more professional or because you chose the the road of of bringing in a lot of capital
2: I think the the latter we we were well funded we invested in the business um, the job net guys were sort of more yielding and t- enjoying great dividends and I think not fueling growth and sort of got off that that growth accelerator. We were continually on that and reinvesting in the business. And we had a much bigger vision. We also represented, I think we out-executed them. We had myself, Paul, and Andrew all looking after the business, whereas JobNet was sort of one guy, and I think it's lonely space to do by yourself. Hmm. Also, I think the fact that we offered sort of across the broad employment spectrum was more valuable than just being in a niche. It's it's hard to get big being a niche player, effectively.
1: Now, it wasn't too long before a few years in when the the Packers yep uh, uh, invested in you yes obviously super famous family particularly then where, where Kerry was still alive I think was he was he then
2: he was he was very much alive yeah he was quite a, quite a cynic actually really did, yeah it was James it was James who was the believer and at the time they had uh, eCorp mm-hmm. you know nine percent which was the joint and eCorp it sort of was their online. Uh, part of the, the you know the PBL family, and they would spun up the joint venture with Microsoft, and so sort of they combined the the Channel Nine assets with with Hotmail and came up with Nine Percent, and that formed E Corp. and and James actually rang us because Monster he realised we were outperforming Monster um, in on all key metrics, and yeah, I think at one time he rang us and said, hey, you know, I'd love to have a chat to you guys about um, the employment space online. You know, He wanted to get involved with us and realized that the monster management wasn't executing, the business wasn't working, and he decided to uh, take, a, take a seek investment, and we saw merit in that with their assets and having sort of kudos, I guess, and grunt of the packer power behind us, and it was a very good marriage, and James became our chairman. He was a great supporter and a, and a good brain around the table. I've got... Nothing, you know, nothing but nice things to say about it. They were value additive.
1: Back in those days, and even now, you know, when, when the Packer name invests, people assume, well, this must be a really good company.
2: It turned out to be a great. I think, I think, you know, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, but I think they invested about $30 million. This is on record and sort of pulled out yeah. 300 yeah. Was it? You know, it was like a 10 times return for them or thereabouts.
1: Yeah. Over what period of time?
2: Um, probably about four or five years, five years
1: maybe. I mean, that's 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 a good oh, IRR. And and you say Kerry yeah. the the father was cynical. I mean, how, did he advise James not to do it? He
2: was a print and newspaper guy, I and mean, this was you know online was James's baby. And you know James had the had the the vision here. He had the relationships with Microsoft and the other you know I think E-Trade and uh, other brands online. And 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 Kerry just sort of didn't get it in a way. Mm. Like he was a, he was a column centimetres guy uh, and a TV guy. He didn't quite wrap his head around this online thing. But at the end of the day, he sort of supported James and the E Corp team. But yeah, I'll never forget sort of sitting in his office and him quizzing me about, you know, the internet. And it was clear that he was trying to get his head around it, but it,
1: it was very foreign to him. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a guy who has understood media to such a degree that he dominated as a as a person. I suppose, you know, Kerry Stokes was a was a, a long way behind as a as a second individual who underst- understood understood uh, media. But we're all guilty of n- not realizing times are changing.
2: Yeah, I mean it's amazing. You look at, you know, the Google guys with YouTube. I mm. mean, wow. When that when they bought into YouTube, it wasn't big dollars, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, we would have all said, don't really get it. How big can this thing be? It's this free sort of anyone can post. And you could say the same with you know Zuckerberg and and Instagram, yeah. WhatsApp. I mean, the ability to sort of see the media future, for want of a better term, is a real gift, and and not many can do it.
1: And and from an outsider's perspective, you know, the typical Australian would go, "Well, this this is just a super company. These guys are all geniuses." But often the reality inside is is different. So many great lessons here with Matt Rockman, co-founder of Seek.
0: The Business Lounge.
1: Did you guys make many mistakes that you would say were substantial along the road? Well, not enough that they were company killing. I think the biggest mistake
2: we made that all businesses make is partnering with the wrong people or hiring the wrong people. There is probably no greater mistake than, you know, picking the wrong partner or picking the wrong senior executive and realizing that too far down the track, sort of thing. That's costly. That's costly. You end up spinning your wheels. You end up often heading down the wrong path or wrong direction. And there's no doubt we took some money for you know in our capital raise from some partners who were suboptimal and very demanding. There's no doubt we had some senior senior hires that were the wrong people, and they were the challenges. Those were the things that sort of held us back, you know, suboptimized our our execution.
1: And how ruthless were you getting rid of people that weren't good? I think we got better. I
2: think we got better. I think we started off giving everybody perhaps too much benefit of the doubt. I mean, we. Seek was well-recognized as as a great employer of choice, a great place to work. Don't forget we were up against these big media companies. So we really tried to onboard people who had a sense of purpose, a sense of up for the battle and the challenge, and reveled in this sort of startup, you know, underdog sort of mm. mission. And, the, and you wanted people who were sort of predisposed or wired, you know, coming to work each day and outspent by the, the bigger players, but really up for the mission of us being the smaller, independent guys. And I think over time we got better at identifying what was this typical you know, what was the perfect or typical Sikh person and persona and looking for that when we were doing our own recruitment. And conversely, if, you know, if we felt somebody didn't embody our cultural values and perhaps didn't have base level smarts, we would get better at sort of moving them on or transitioning them
1: into a more appropriate role. Yeah. And a lot of people say that one of the keys to seek was how the three of you worked together. And what's interesting from a um, sociological point of view is that your other two partners were brothers. So knew yeah. each other about yeah. as well as anyone could, could know someone. And- I, I, I'm the tall, good looking Bassett. Um, Yeah, it was
2: was a sort of weird dynamic, really. And it was one that sort of just happened. It wasn't sort of super pre-contemplated. Paul had come up with the concept Andrew, his brother, was working as a consultant. I sort of joined as the sales marketing guy, and we, we just got onto it. I mean, the, the mission was so big and so ambitious. It was a real BHAG mm-hmm. idea that there was no time to second guess. And I think one of the great success drivers of our business was that we had three trusted guys, each executing against sort of you know a key lever or a key department. I had revenue, Andrew had strategy and and eyeballs, Paul had sort of finance and product. That was quite leveraged, Mm -hmm. you know, because it wasn't one guy trying to manage a senior leadership team, it was sort of three owners focused across all the key areas of the business. And we would go to work every day and give it our
1: absolute max. To make sure we performed and when you say absolute max what kind of hours were you working back then oh uh, i don't know
2: but it was it was pretty serious it was pretty impactful on our young families and, and let me let me just say there was definitely a few overnight sleeps in the office going on really yeah it was pretty arduous trying to take something from you know effectively a business plan and ipo seven seven years later
1: yeah and, and, you know, with the family, you, you've, you had uh, two young daughters at, at, yep. at that stage and yep. of, uh, obviously a wife. What kind of, uh, uh, how stressful was it for, for them?
2: I think it was really impactful. I mean, you've really got to be up for it with your partner. Mm. I probably wasn't around as certainly as much as I am now with my kids uh, and or for my wife. I think, it's, I think it's massive, impactful stuff. So you want to make sure you're going to win, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're not seeing your family. You know, my wife was attending a lot of things without me. You know, you really want to make sure you, you, you know, get that ball through the hoop.
1: What do you think about work-life life balance in general for, for entrepreneurs? Do you think it's a myth?
2: I think it's bullshit. I think it's... To- I mean, I, I think work-life balance... Is uh, fantastic once you've made it. Yeah. You know, I've got I've got the best work life balance in the world now because I'm totally in control of my diary and I don't really employ anyone. Yeah, yeah. it's top right on the chart. But you got to get there, and and you know, on the way there, it's grueling and it's hard, and and you have no work life balance. And you know, I say to my daughters, sort of persistence is everything. You know, if you've got baseline smarts and you've got a lot of ambition and you sort of you know get knocked down and you keep going, you'll get there in some shape. Or form persistence is an
1: absolute key ingredient to success. No doubt about it. And particularly as a founder, is a problem solver as a profession. And I think people outside think that companies that doing uh, that are doing well are going well internally. But by sheer with the sheer ambition, you're constantly iterating, aren't you? Yeah, and and, and
2: you know it looks calm on
1: the outside, but there's often
2: chaos on the inside, right? Yeah. Persistence, ambition is really important. I think clarity of strategy and purpose is important. I think. Being good at hiring and managing talent is
1: important. Well, eventually you, it, it becomes the most important once yeah. you've built the platform, and then you've you've got a direction. I mean, it's almost all hiring, isn't
2: it? Yeah, platform? and it's the only way you get leverage, right? It's mm. the only way you get leverage and and legacy is through
1: great hiring. Mm. But it's easier said than done. Yeah, and do, did you have some kind of organised methodology of hiring? Like you know, six people uh, interviewed them, or there was a yeah. set. Uh, series of things you're looking for.
2: Yeah, as I said, we 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 got better and better over time, and I think we got better at understanding what was a bad hire and what makes a good hire. And our interview process, one thing we we sort of worked out was that our in, interview process would be super robust and very deep. We'd spend a lot of time with. You know, And it depended on seniority, but we'd spend a lot of time with uh, candidates, multi-interviews. One of the directors had to sign off on the hire. We did proper due diligence. It's a slower, more arduous, time-consuming process to do that, not always mm. convenient. But I think it ensures you against making the wrong hires. And the wrong hires are very expensive. Mm. And I'm not just talking... From p and L perspective, I'm talking from a cultural impact and slowing the organisation down perspective.
1: Did you ever get rid of people who did a good job, but they were just culturally bad?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, we we were you know we were quite a large company as we went through the IPO curve, and you had all sorts. You, I ran the sales team, and you know it was always hard when you had a star sales performer, but the person was a dickhead. Mm. Like they weren't a team player. They didn't really take direction. You couldn't see super longevity, they're only out for themselves, but they're a mm. great earner for you. Like what do you do? Do you do you just strangle your golden goose? Mm. And conversely go the other way and say, hey, you had super culturally additive people, great team players, real lifters of the spirit, fantastic to be around, but perhaps weren't as effective in the in the core task as others. And and you know, that's the opposite of that. And I think at the end of the day, give me attitude over ability every time. You know, you can sort of fixability, yeah. I think, with the right coaching and management and mentorship. It's very hard to fix a broken attitude.
0: The Business Lounge. No job titles. No agendas. No thongs.
1: So I remember before you even started SEEK, you once said to me, and you probably don't even remember this, but you said you had your motto or your credo was one word, which was ask. and And the concept behind it, I guess, is the power of just opening doors tell us about that a bit
2: yeah well, it's nothing formalized but I, I mean you have just got to have a go I think you've just got to ask somebody for the business or ask somebody for the opportunity or ask somebody for the capital and I still do that to this day you know I'm, I'm still involved with a bunch of sort of startups or growth companies and a bunch of them have gone through capital raising process and I still get on the phone and get on the emails and you know try and help these companies raise capital and I think yeah, you know, that comes back to that persistence thing, right? Like just keep knocking on the door, keep asking, keep pushing, and eventually, you know, the no will become a yes. I think I think persistence, it comes back to what I said before. Like just ask somebody for the business, ask them if you can do an alliance, you know, ask if you can work together or be collaborative. Yeah. Ask somebody to come and join
1: your team. A classic example of that. Part of folklore really is Canva. Didn't they say like she asked something like 80 different VCs or some massive number of VCs? Before she got some uh, venture capital support for Canva?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I don't know the number, but I mean, there's, you know, success history is littered with people who have had to be extremely persistent and, you know, one-eyed in their their vision, know that they're trying to deliver value or or a better mousetrap or a better way to do something and they just keep going. Mm. I really think it's a core ingredient to success.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of people need to hear that because they might be in their business now and it's not going so well and they think there's something wrong. With that. But really it's just a normal course of events until you get it right.
2: Yeah, like I like I say, look behind every overnight success and there's ten years of pain. Yeah. There's ten years of uh punching hard and getting up every day and it's you know, it's not all the sun's not always shining, it's not all always easy, and it feels like the wheels are gonna fall off. And as you said, you know, things can look smooth from the outside, but often there's a lot of chaos going on mm. on the inside, and that's why that sort of one eyed
1: vision and persistence is so important. And you overcame that. You pushed through that, and eventually you, you had you know truly one of Australia's greatest—not just internet stories, but greatest companies. But then you left the company. Why?
2: Yeah, look, I—I I, I probably needed to return some work-life balance. I had two young daughters and, and a wife who you know didn't have me around. I felt that I'd you know I'd certainly had some great commercial success. I felt like I'd sort of tick that box. I was the—I was the director of a public company, which personally, I don't love. It's mm. not for me. What's required there and the pace and the obligation. You know, I, I hit a bit of an intersection in my life where I decided I was sort of, you know, 40 and thought, hey, you know, there's got to be more to life than this and decided to sort of take some time off and move to the south of France with my family and effectively sat on a beach and, you know, contemplated life for a little while. And I, I don't regret that at all. I mean, I certainly stayed in touch and missed some of the sick family and you know, amazed to see it go from strength to strength. Mm. You know, for me, it was it was a right time in my life
1: to turn the page on the chapter and, and begin a new chapter of my life. And what was that like? You know, because you put a, a decent innings in it at Seek. If in a number of years, how many years was was it then total? You were there about ten. Was it weird to start again? Did you have a kind of moment where you didn't know what to do or you started a couple of things and before you decided on on a new lifestyle? How hard was that?
2: I think it's really hard. The chasm that I've I feel that I've Frost, and it's taken a while. And a lot of people do this—is you know, moving from a business owner, entrepreneur, and manager to an investor. Mm. And that's—they're very different disciplines. They, you know, they're different arenas. And I think you know, and business owners and managers tend to be sort of control-obsessed and want to get dive into the detail and very operational. And I think investors are sort of analytical, dispassionate, and try and you know identify pattern recognition. So they're very different disciplines. it's taken me a while, but I, I think it's hard to come from and vice versa. I, I'm not sure many great investors become great business managers. In fact, I can't think of many that have trodden that path. It's mm. more typical of the path I've perhaps done. Mm. I didn't go into property investment as a lot of people in this country who have successful exits do. You you know, what's the one thing you do in Australia is you buy property, you know, and property mm. sort of doubles over every ten year cycle or something. I actually started Investing back in early stage companies and growth stage companies and listed equities, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, look, I've found that fascinating. I, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are driven by the curiosity to learn. Mm-hmm. And being an investor, you learn a lot more. You know, you learn a lot compared to being a business owner and manager. They're different skills and disciplines. But it's just part
1: of life's crazy fabric. And when you, having been used to driving a company yourself. Start investing in others. Was it really difficult not to just say, hey, listen, this is what you do? Let me jump in and and fix it for you?
2: Yeah, and I I think I've done a shit job of that from time (laughs) to time. And I'm not going to name some of the companies because some of them are listed and I'm getting better at that. But initially, that was my first reaction and, you know, sort of to dive straight in and say, hey, I can fix this, get out of the way. And, You've got to learn not to do that as a as a board director. As an, you know, you've got to try and influence rather than instruct. Yeah, that's definitely on my development needs. But I think I'm, I think if you ask some of the CEOs today, they'd say, "Yeah, I, I make suggestions,
1: but I don't I don't use the elbow." And you've had some big wins as an investor. What are some of the favorite companies that that you've invested in? Look, I've invested in a bunch of
2: different companies, listed and unlisted. I mean, my current batch of companies I work with, I'm I'm very fond of. I've I've got a small crypto fund called Magnet Capital, run by two really great smart guys. I don't need to emphasise how challenged the crypto category is at the moment, but you know, hopefully some green shoots. And I think crypto will go on to be a thing. Mm. It's obviously taking longer and you know going through a lot more sort of investment pain, but I think it'll get there over time and become more established. I'm a sort of foundation investor and on the board of a exciting healthcare private equity business called Genesis Capital. And we sort of buy different healthcare assets and turn them around and get them when they're small and grow them into bigger companies. That's run by two really smart guys. There's an online food services ordering platform called Audimentum mm-hmm. run by a great founder CEO called Adam Theobald. And he's trying to sort of change the way that restaurants, bars, and venues interact with their suppliers. That's super, super exciting. I'm working with a really great team at Yarra Capital's growth fund called Discovery, and we're trying to invest in sort of three-year-out IPO businesses. So, you know, it's a bit of a full dance card, and I work with some truly great people, and I really love that.
1: Brilliant. Regarding crypto, is your view that one um, coin or, or platform is going to dominate, uh, for instance. Bitcoin because it's got brand or do you think it's just going to split into a million categories? Yeah, look, that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I think Bitcoin's going to around whether it'll maintain its sort
2: of leadership status, don't know, it's not as useful as something like Ethereum and other protocols. Mm-hmm. It's very early in a, in a in a marathon here, it sort of feels like we're 10 feet into a marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminds me of early days of the internet, there was a lot of naysayers. I think crypto's had some really bad, you know, a lot of bad actors. It's had some bad press with guys like, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and other sort of fraudulent dodgy behavior mm. the market's full of a lot of you know lamborghini driving spivs and young kids who are sort of hey I'm the crypto billionaires i think that stuff will wash out over time and i think you know the tokenization and blockchain will be seen as as super useful tech mm. and, and used in more legitimate useful applications and we're seeing that like you know the blackrock etf JP Morgan are starting to offer a custodisation. Bank New York Melanie is. Fidelity's playing there. I I think it'll get there over time, but it's going to be a bumpy ride.
0: The Business Lounge. No job titles, no agendas, no thongs. We're back here in The Business Lounge with
1: Matt Rockman, co-founder of Seek. Is there a common element in the entrepreneur that you're backing is distinct the business model that you're backing that you look for in particular?
2: Yeah, it's sort of it quadrants out into different aspects. I mean, I you know, first I look for somebody who is good and, and, and genuine value sets. Somebody who who's honest, somebody who sort of wants to make a difference. You know, you want to try and avoid the dickheads from the investing side I, we've all had you know most in, it, it, professional investors will tell you they have backed the wrong people along the way and it's it's very hard to be successful if if you back the sort of wrong wrong kind of person so I think sort of cultural values and value sets are really important. You know, smarts is really important. Some of the guys I work with, you know, amaze me with their their capability and horsepower. Mm. Others are energy and persistence and vision. You know, mm. they, they have a true belief in what they're doing and they just get up, get up every day and, you know, bang the drum for that. So, you're looking for a well-rounded person who has the energy, who has the smarts, and has a, a great set of values that are not going to do the wrong thing by their shareholders, their staff, their customers.
1: When you invest in these companies, you've kind of changed strategies, haven't you? Because you used to invest in a lot of early stage, and you don't do that anymore. Why?
2: Uh, It's just a risk appetite, risk profile, sort of change. Change, you know, my footing. I think early stage investing is a lot of fun. You're dealing with very young, in a lot of cases, young, super hungry, slash, you know, aggressive people. But the business may or may not succeed, and the the balance of probability is they probably won't in a lot of cases. It's pretty uh, Darwinian in the sense that, you know, not a lot get through all their funding stages to the sort of profit territory and and then beyond. I'm preferring these days from a risk management perspective and also the type of founders tend to be a bit older and a bit more experienced to deal in the growth, growth equity and private equity stage where people have some experience under their belt and the businesses have a bit more momentum.
1: What are your feelings about AI? Do you think it's like an overdone trend or do you think it's really uh, full of opportunity?
2: I think it's huge. I think it's abs- I think it's a real game changer. Mm. You know, markets like to get excited about this stuff and, you know, equity markets and, and private markets have gotten themselves super, super excited about AI and probably overreached as they've done with crypto from time to time, as they've done with cloud storage from time to time, as they've done with social media from time to mm. time. I think AI
1: is a big thematic. Mm. It's definitely a, a big thematic. Looking back... At your career, a lot of highlights, a, a couple of I wouldn't say lowlights, mid midlights like uh, uh, anyone's career. Looking back, what, is there anything that you do differently?
2: Probably show a bit, try and develop a bit more patience with some of the CEOs and and, and managers I work with along the way. I'm a you know a pretty impatient guy, and mm-hmm. I, I think in some instances that hasn't served me as well as it could have.
1: As in not patient with people or not patient with businesses because they take they take too long to to. Grow.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it can be one and the same, right? It just takes longer. And, you know, as you said before, I've stood on the sidelines and sort of tended to dive in. Or if somebody's not delivering an outcome perhaps as quickly as I expected, it, I've probably been a bit fast or knee jerk to react. And I think as I get older and, you know, maybe infinitesimally wiser, I'm, I'm trying to learn to be a bit more patient and give people a bit more time and give things a bit more time. I mean, it just, you know, things happen more slowly than you would like them to. And I'm a pretty impatient sort of person. Mm. I'm trying, and my wife would say, she'd love to see me develop a bit more.
1: Patience <laughs> Around the kitchen table for sure. Yeah. All yeah. Right. Or in the traffic. <laughs> yeah. So any last advice? There's a lot of people listening today who are uh, pretty keen to grow their own great business. Any advice for them? You
2: know, Hire well, be persistent, try and work out the differentiators and, and, and the value of where you're playing and try and stay away from being a, just another commodity. Mm. You could d- dive deep on each of those, but I think I think that that sets you up well for success if yeah. you pull all those levers. Great advice, great
1: advice. Well, there you have it, folks. A brilliant mind and an awesome entrepreneur and investor, Matt Rockman. Matt, thanks for sharing your story with us today in the Business Lounge. Thanks, Simon. Take care, mate. So what have we learned here? Well, heaps of things. I think one that really stands out for me is work-life balance is bullshit. If you, if you want to create a great company and you're early stage, you're going to have to put the hours in. You're going to have to burn the midnight oil. And to not do that is just deluding yourself. Next up, the power of asking. What's interesting is Matt was really at the sharp end of the spear with Seek because he was in charge of sales. And that meant knocking on doors getting turned down many, many times, particularly in the early days, but just persistently asking and then asking for investor after investor after investor to keep putting money into the business. Are you asking enough in your business? Next, clarity of strategy he put forward as one of the most important things and particularly in a new environment, a new industry where it's quite hard See where to go. They invested an enormous amount of time in that. And then another aspect that really hit me was the effort they put into hiring. There were multiple people that judged whether this person was the right person to hire. They looked deep in what the person was like culturally, and not just on on ability. And once they got started and learned a few lessons with hiring, they never rushed a hire. They put effort in up to make sure that these were the right people. So many great lessons here from Matt, a guy who's done it so well and now manages other entrepreneurs doing it. Fantastic lessons here
0: in The Business Lounge. The Business Lounge. Disrupts Radio. Conscious Capital. Better business for a better world.
2: I'm Tony Hunter. My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning, what everyone is calling artificial intelligence at this point in time.
0: We uncover the extraordinary stories of the changemakers who are rewriting the rules and making the world a better place.
2: To explore what's happening on the frontiers of science and technology and seek out stories of human progress.
0: Conscious Capital features a lineup of fascinating guests, visionary entrepreneurs, innovative nonprofit leaders, and influential impact investors. We're focused on the solutions rather than the problems. Conscious Capital.
2: Live on DAB+, online and on demand
1: at disrupt.radio.